0: Hello, this is Arun, the co-producer and narrator of the podcast you're just about to listen to. Thanks so much for choosing to listen to our podcast. This podcast is made with immersive audio, so get your headphones out and connect it to your device, or if you're listening to it on a great home stereo with a Bluetooth connection or a home theater system, or in the comfort of your car for that amazing immersive audio experience, we hope you like it. This is a Scrap Studio production and we at Scraps are an organization whose primary focus is to disseminate factful stories of science, scientists and innovation as a service to the world. We take pride in bringing you the stories of people in science and history of science. If you like this series, please do search for our other podcast from Scrap Studio. The podcast is titled Scraps with a K. It's S-K-R-A-P-S, which is an interview-based podcast series focusing on many topics with expert scientists and innovators on a variety of topics like biomedical engineering, cardiac biology, medtech, tech, climate change, psychopathy, human composting, material science, artificial intelligence, venture capital, and many more. We don't just talk about the subjects We talk about the stories of the very scientists who work on these areas. If you like our work, please share it with your friends, family and acquaintances. And please talk about it over coffee, drinks and on vacation. This is the best help that you can provide us.
1: The 1971 ban and war on drugs put a gradual chokehold on how research and clinical studies with psychedelic molecules could be conducted. The legislation placed these psychedelic molecules, like LSD and psilocybin, in the same category as highly addictive drugs. MDMA joined the list in the early 1980s. In episode 6, we saw how the gradual restarting of research came about. The efforts to restart the research took a long time and did not involve the traditional group of scientists, pharmaceutical companies, or drug discovery researchers. It came about due to a realization that mistakes were made in the past. Mistakes that wrongfully placed these plant-based substances and compounds into the DEA Schedule I classification. Mistakes were also made by the very people who acted as proponents of the psychedelic therapies. Rather than choosing drafted protocols and conducting studies of the highest scientific quality, these researchers of the time conducted only observational studies. They forged data, and more importantly, because they enjoyed the altered state of mind, became evangelists with zero consideration for how careful science must be conducted. This has since changed. Our sixth episode in the series explored the stories of how people who wanted to change the system decided to work with the system and chose the path taken by most traditional medicines. It's crucial to mention and stress one point. Just because these are plant-based substances and that growing mushrooms or other plants are not illegal, it doesn't make it right to administer this to patients who seek help. The history of psychedelic plants and chemical discoveries is rife with self-administration and self-discovery. But so is medicine. Just because early researchers many years ago self-administered medicines or plant extracts, we do not see clinical trials conducted without adequate safety studies, dose-ranging considerations, or investigators or chemists administering these drugs to themselves. While the political and legal framework and decisions in the era of the war on drugs was wrong, It does not make it right for underground therapists to administer these plants or plant-based substances widely, or even synthesize these substances and make the recipe available to underground chemists, while still consulting for the DEA, as some chemists did at the time. Granted that many underground practitioners trained in various Mesoamerican methods to help patients with mental health disorders. Or in the case of the chemist who became one of the most influential figures in psychoactive advancements, influenced many positively with his helpful chemistry underpinnings. But in today's society, if one wants to legitimize a therapy, it has to be done within the realms of what is deemed legally right. And none of those people did anything towards legitimizing these drugs. Now we seek to explore how this tide is being turned. In episode seven, we explored PTSD and the impact of psychedelics in treating PTSD, both via personal experiences of veterans who explored it in countries where psychedelics are legal, as well as in interviews with the lead trialists of the trial that explores MDMA as treatment for PTSD. It's time now to see how the tide is turning for other disorders. This is Psychedelics, A Scraps original podcast exploring the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. An enthralling story of an improbable drug class as old as humankind itself. Banished into exile, yet comes back soaring like a phoenix from the ashes to save mankind's affliction with mental health disorders.
0: So we have established that any drug development for a new therapeutic opportunity and widespread use must have carefully considered clinical studies to be performed. But let's explore how this thinking came to be and what evidence is available to change our view that psychedelics can indeed help patients with depression and substance abuse. Remember episode 3 when we talked about LSD and its use in the hands of psychologists Humphrey Osmond, Abram Hoffer and John Smithies? When LSD was first explored for clinical studies, Osman had started an experiment where the intention was that he would use LSD as a way to give his alcohol-addicted patients a bad experience, and to use psychotherapy to see the merits of his patients giving up alcohol. But what happened was something that blew Osman's mind. He found that the psychedelic experience with LSD, which was legal back then, made his patients see themselves as an out-of-body experience and tell their own story to their psyche about how their habits came to be and how it was affecting them and the people around themselves. This in turn made them quit abusing alcohol. Stan Grof, despite his philosophical and psychological treatises, equated LSD to a microscope and a telescope and fell short by doing only observational study. One could argue that this is the only thing that was possible at the time, but this is far from the case. Clinical trials were conducted for many drug approvals and indication expansions. Just because a drug and its synthesis was legal, a new application and use by a clinician requires careful clinical trials. So the real evidence generation in terms of putting together the evidence came when the Hefter Research Institute decided to fund research studies ...to explore the clinical use of psychedelic mushrooms and its active ingredient, psilocybin. But there was a major difference. The bad rap that the community in the field of research of psychedelic medicines had got... ...made the founders of the Hefter Research Institute think... ...that it was crucial to perform and generate evidence... ...and make sure that the studies were holier than the Pope. So the first study to ever formally explore the role of psychedelics... ...in something close to depression or anxiety came from patients with end-stage cancer. Charlie Grobe and George Greer published the study of a double-blind randomized control study in 12 patients with psilocybin, exploring its safety and looking for early signals on mood and anxiety in terminal cancer patients. It is crucial for people who listen to this episode to realize that, to enable this study, the scientists had to demonstrate that there were two prior studies that dosed psilocybin by a carefully considered ethical clinical research that showed that psilocybin increased glucose uptake in certain brain regions. This was the first study that we alluded to in episode 6 that was funded by Hefter Research Institute with Franz Wallenweider as the principal investigator. So this study was an acute administration of the drug in patients undergoing brain imaging. So in essence, this was a mechanism of action study. The safety of psilocybin was carefully observed and explored in 36 volunteers where two doses of psilocybin was tested and confirmed to produce mystical experience. This study offered a surrogate of a what would be called today as a phase one clinical study, where the safety and tolerability effects were explored in healthy volunteers. This study was led by Roland Griffiths, who heads the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic Research. Then the study that Charles Grobe performed in end-stage cancer patients had both the information from the previous two studies to ensure and inform the ethical committee that patients who will take the required dose of psilocybin as part of the study will not be harmed. So the effects that was measured and published in the archives of General Psychiatry was one that provided the confidence that the effect was real. This then prompted more widespread trials in depression. Clinical depression,
1: as we know, is not something that patients can just snap out of. It can be difficult for patients and those around them to understand and often takes many months or years to be self-aware or be diagnosed. The symptoms of depression can be mild to severe, and at its mildest can be one where the person feels low in energy and spirit, and in severe cases, they might feel suicidal. The psychological symptoms of depression include continuous low mood or sadness, feeling hopeless and helpless, having low self-esteem, feeling tearful, feeling guilt-ridden, feeling irritable and intolerant of others, having no motivation or interest in things, finding it difficult to make decisions, not getting any enjoyment out of life, feeling anxious or worried, having suicidal thoughts or thoughts of harming yourself. The psychological symptoms can result in physical symptoms that one usually reports to the family physician or a general practitioner. The physical symptoms of depression include Moving or speaking more slowly than usual Changes in appetite or weight, usually decreased but sometimes increased Constipation Unexplained aches and pains Lack of energy Low sex drive or loss of libido Changes to your menstrual cycle Disturbed sleep, for example, finding it difficult to fall asleep at night or waking up very early in the morning. The combination of psychological and physical can lead to the social symptoms of depression. Those symptoms include avoiding contact with friends and taking part in fewer social activities, neglecting your hobbies and interests, or having difficulties in your home, work, or family life.
0: Can we listen to a true event from the life of Brett? as told by his ex-girlfriend, Marianne. We can only say that it was mentally very taxing just to hear these stories, but one can only imagine what it must have been like for Brent.
2: Marianne Diamond. We met at a bar on a Saturday morning. My friend Patty made me go watch the Irish game football, which I don't even watch. Um, and we sat there and Brent rolled in, and he and Patty had a conversation for like two hours during the game, and I was like, this is stupid. And um, I don't know. He turned out to be a really, really nice guy, and we ended up dating after that. And we lived together and and that's that's how we met. Well, when I broke it off with Brent, um, I had been through a bunch of episodes where he was um, driving drunk. Um, he smashed up my car, he smashed up his own body. He was going out in the middle of the night to get vodka. Um, and I tried to put him into a rehab center. I tried to talk to family members and they had kind of at that point reached enough is enough. So it was a little bit on my own and I knew I couldn't do it be in that scenario anymore. So I did my best to get him into a rehab program and ended our relationship. Yes, we remained friends. I still have love for him, care about him very much. He's a very, very kind soul. I didn't anticipate this coming, but he's a very good person. And I don't I don't think he set out to destroy himself on purpose. Um, And in the second scenario, he had gone through three rehabs. Three of them. Um And the last one was here in San Diego. And uh, he spent a year, maybe a year and a half there. So over the course of the last, I don't know, like uh, two and a half years, he had been to three re- rehab programs. And then when he graduated, I guess, I don't know what the proper term is for that, but when he graduated this last last one at that point he had been in rehab for two years at three different facilities the first one was a joke the the one i got him into the second one was too gnarly like up in long beach with a bunch of druggy gangsters um and the sec, the third one the last one green oaks or something and just a very faith-based he Graduated, he was doing well. I could tell the difference when I spoke with him, and it wasn't very often, but we kept in touch. And then, in this last couple months of the journey, uh, we moved in together as roommates, nothing romantic. And uh, apparently, he started drinking shortly after moving into the house. Um, And then it progressed to worse and worse and worse to the point of where he wasn't working anymore and he was sleeping all day and not doing anything except for going out early in the morning and probably, I guess, by the end of it, he was buying um, um, for a day. Um, Yes, a lot happened, in fact, I would call any number one of, any one of those events, um, you know, what, I guess, I'm not a psychiatrist in any way, shape or form, but like what they would call a major life event, changing jobs, moving, you know, so he moved, his ex-wife married his childhood friend, the best man at her wedding, who stood up for his childhood friend was his other best friend from childhood. His, not his biological dad, but his real dad, the dad the dad who was a father to him, a dad, died of cancer. Yeah, uh, a lot of life-changing events. His son also um, has been transitioning and they haven't spoken in two years, and um, Yeah, kind of all compressed into that very short period of time. However, he was drinking in a more like social way, like a couple of Bud Lights or something, you know, before. And then these moments occurred and he had to experience them. And I don't, I don't think he could handle it. He was abandoned by his dad and his mom he went through multiple stepdads Um, I just think he wasn't given the tools to deal to cope and to deal with these things (laughs) one of the most beautiful things about him and one of the most annoying ones for me was that he just stayed positive all the time I tried to share with him that feeling these feelings that he's having um, is part of learning how to deal with life. You have to, the more you ignore them, the bigger they pop up somewhere else in a dark and twisty, moody way and and I thought we were getting close to doing some of that together just by talking and it um, didn't work out that way. <laughs> but I think by suppressing all of that it was like, I don't know, 50 plus years of suppression, abandonment issues, I think, by pretty much everyone he loved in his life. Dad died. His ex-wife not only left him, but uh, married his childhood friend. So that's a two for. One of his sons is transitioning and um, um, hasn't spoken with him in two years. Basically since the divorce Mom has passed But abandoned him Way before that Like I say I'm no psychologist But um, I think he died Of a broken heart
0: If you feel a bit sad I must say You're not alone We share your pain But let's actually hear From Marianne What did she think Of the rehab programs That Brett was in And did it really help
2: there's the program ones, um, which brings a lot of higher power religious kind of doctrine into it. I think, you know, the 12-step program was definitely a part of some of them. <laughs> you know, accepting what you can't change and blah, 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 and all that stuff. Um, I guess in just the short amount of time I've had to try and look upon everything, Um, I don't think that (laughs) religion works. I think what has happened is somehow, somebody fell into a person such as Brent, fell into a situation that was excruciatingly painful, and maybe he was very young, and probably learned how to um, cope, or numb with drugs, alcohol, doesn't matter what. And then his body chemistry changed. And again, not a scientist or a psychiatrist, but um, so if your synapses are firing and misfiring and you're doing it over and over and over again, constantly, now you're creating these habits that are not just emotional, but physical, I think. Um, because if you look at Brent as an example, he was a 55-year-old man. He just turned 55 in May. And um, these habits, he started when he was 10, 11, 12, I don't know somewhere in there. Parents, alcoholics, uh, not Larry, um, but his mom, definitely. And, um, he suffered with it, that's like 30 years. That's 40 years. 40 years of changing your brain chemistry. How is God (laughs) or some 12-step program going to help him change something that is uh, help me with the word uh, uh, physiologically something he can't overcome. So now you put people into programs who are clearly dealing with something that probably started as an emotional trigger episode experience. You plaster some Jesus bullshit on there and you're asking this person to to change chemically their brain I don't care how long you lock somebody up into a program my experience has been now with Brent and it doesn't mean it. it's across the board for everyone obviously uh, we're all different but um, there's no amount of steps or God or it's it's gotta be a two pronged situation. Something has to help your brain get back, and it might never, but you also have to go to the source of what the real problem is emotionally not a uh, higher power. You can find that, obviously. We all choose to or not, but uh, I mean, I choose things that are not. Um, higher powery but definitely a bigger than myself <laughs> did you know that was a word higher reef. <laughs> so I don't know I mean I, I think it's a excuse me multi prong um, I think it's a you have to fix it with three different I mean there's medical I mean changing your is physiology right brain chemistry snap I'm going to change that overnight bullshit. I'm going to change that with some behavioral, you know, psychology. No, it's got to be like a couple of different things. And you have to address, I think, the the root of the cause while also changing brain chemistry. Because you're asking somebody who's in a very, very tiny, vulnerable Maybe it's not tiny, but it's a vulnerable place to be to go through something that is physical. Addiction. They're not... Yeah, they are choosing, but they're also not choosing.
0: Mary-Ann Brent and a third roommate moved in together in April. Two and a half months later, on 16th of June, Brent was found to be unresponsive in the shower. As sad as it may seem, we asked Mary-Ann if Brent would have been willing to try other alternative therapies if it was available, like the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy.
2: I think he would have been open to it because I think at a certain point there was a level of what felt possibly like desperation. Now he's challenged with the emotional and the physical, and I guess that I don't know anything about this, but when you start drinking again after not having been drinking, that it could be twofold or manifested in a much higher way, but, or powerful way. Um, I don't know. I don't know if he did kill himself. I mean, but I think that if he had the right kind of help, not this bullshitty, like, uh, what's your higher power? (laughs) Uh, We're not going to talk about the root cause And um, we're going to force you to battle your addiction Your physical, chemical, physiological addiction Basically by cutting you off Giving you a breathalyzer test every day Checking your blood It's not going to do anything You've changed the brain You've changed it
0: Once Brent was found to be unresponsive in the tub, one can imagine the toll it took on him and also on people around him, like Marianne. It was a start of the trauma and the frustration that is felt by many familial members who bear the weight of depression and addiction of their loved ones.
2: It's interesting because after they arrived and, oh my gosh, unbelievable, the... uh, just the firefighters and everybody involved um, somehow um, they were able after working on themselves for I don't know 15-20 minutes they were able to get him to the hospital and they got him on life support and I think you're right because the reason I don't think Brent died here at the house was because He needed to talk to his son and say goodbye. So when they got him on life support um, and we finally got a hold of biosperm man, um, um, he finally came to the hospital and he called his son, Joe. And Joe Joe was able to talk to his dad, even though he wasn't conscious, and he died right after. Him. So I don't, I don't think that he would have intentionally killed himself. Although, I think he suffered from a lot of heart pain, and um, from that, he was not physically able to cope with his addiction. And I... And uh, the jo- the joke of all of it was, these rehabs are an absolute disgrace. They're just money makers, in my opinion. The first one that I got him into was in Hawaii. It was a freaking vacation for him. They were like cliff diving, sitting out at the pool, waterfalls, blah, 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 for a month. It was a joke. It cost $25,000. The second one was a bunch of convicts, ex-convicts that were put into these programs because if they weren't in jail, they needed to spend whatever time. Disgusting. Behaviorally, absolutely the wrong thing. For somebody who is that vulnerable, psychically, you know, emotionally, crazy. Okay. Oh, and how about all the um, counselors that work at these programs? They're all ex-addicts themselves. They don't have any degrees in psychology, as I do not either. But like, you're telling me that that's going to cure them? It's messed up and it's systemic now. I mean, I guarantee you we're going to see way more of this.
0: For a second, it is crucial to understand how depression comes about. While the detailed molecular mechanism is still not clearly understood, it is now widely accepted that patients with depression have low levels of serotonin in their body. This is why the existing antidepressants inhibit the reuptake mechanism of of serotonin from the nerve synapses in the brain. So by inhibiting the reuptake of neurotransmitter serotonin, it technically is thought of to make serotonin more available for action. The issue is not so much with the intention of the antidepressant medications called Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, or SSRIs, but all the side effects that it causes, which we covered in Episode 7. A few years ago, when the results of serotonin depletion and depression link came out, I spent a few weeks chuckling to myself. And let me tell you why. In the place that I come from, Tamil Nadu in South India, curd, or yogurt as it is called by the Western world, is a staple food. There is a saying that roughly translates to the following, a blissful fool only gets rice with curd, or in my native language, it literally means, muttalikku While this derogatory, while this is derogatory, and aims to convey that one needs to work hard to enjoy the variety of foods, while a lazy stupid fool just gets to eat white curd rice. I found this fascinating because while curd is eaten as a staple in South India with every meal, milk products provide the tryptophan necessary to make serotonin in the gut. This was the relationship, a relationship we explored in episode 5, where we explored the pharmacology of psychedelics. So a few years ago, diet depleted in tryptophan was tested in human volunteers and it showed that within a few hours of depletion of tryptophan, in the diet, patients' mood was affected. This causal link has forced many philosophers and scientists to expouse that the patients with depression feel like they are in a deep cavern, one where they can see the light but are surrounded by darkness and the light seems so far away. This puts added pressure on the patients and those around them in a familial and work settings and impacts productivity of the patients themselves. One might have heard of people taking up yoga, meditation, deep breathing, running, increasing the time in the sun, eating more oatmeal and bananas, etc. As all of these act to increase serotonin levels and elevate mood. So that was the anecdote of the cultural view of a natural food provided to us by lactobacteria that helps us with our mood. Let's swing back to how the effects of psychedelics on end-stage cancer anxiety and depression was tested.
1: Following on from the first study, published in 2011, the second most detailed and carefully controlled study was published in 2016. Approximately 30 patients were randomized into placebo and psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, and follow-up at 6.5 months was studied. A second study was published in an additional 51 patients the same year. While these are small studies with less than 100 patients in each group, the effect size was substantial. This has prompted more philanthropic and grant funding mechanisms to further the research into depression. One of the significant studies that act to provide additional evidence for moving psilocybin from end of life anxiety and depression to more mainstream chronic depression patients was done at Imperial College in London. This study was published in early 2021 and should be seen as an example of a well-controlled experimental medicine study. While the investigators, David Nutt and Robin Carhart-Harris, have been vocal about these drugs being illegal and therefore had to jump through the hoops and bureaucracy to perform these studies, it should not be forgotten that these investigators, despite the political messaging, have taken a stringent testing approach. Buoyed on by the Johns Hopkins Depression Study in end-stage cancer patients and early evidence of the effect in patients with major depressive disorders, the research group at Imperial College London took on a tough scientific challenge. This is the stage where I think it helps to pause and take stock. Much like how the Phase Three MDMA trials took on patients with PTSD who had long-standing PTSD despite all therapy, these investigators took on the current medication regimen. From their patient cohort, who were on antidepressants, they randomized the patients into two groups, one that continued with their current antidepressants or ones that had psilocybin as the
0: experimental treatment. Both treatment groups underwent psychotherapy for the entire duration of the study with the same protocol. Credit has to be given to the study investigators for ensuring that there was no bias in the study conduct they made sure that the two groups were identical. The psilocybin group was one that received six weeks of placebo, while the acetylopram, the current standard of care antidepressant, was given and administered to all patients in the acetylopram group for the entire six weeks' duration. Since they were testing the effects of psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, the psilocybin group had 25 mg of psilocybin administered during the two psychotherapy sessions while the escitalopram group had just 1 mg of psilocybin administered during the psychotherapy sessions. This was a bold decision. In the past, when studies used niacin as a placebo, these study investigators wanted to ensure that a sub or barely adequate dose of psilocybin was used. The study, as a result, compared the direct impact of psilocybin and the current antidepressant standard of care head-to-head and the results were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. The results were astonishing. Two doses of psilocybin administered during the psychotherapy sessions was no different to the escitalopram group in terms of the antidepressant scores. But all the secondary outcome measures, which includes lower depression scores and a higher proportion of remission, occurred in the psilocybin group. These promising results imply two things. Firstly, that the two sessions of psilocybin therapy is as efficacious as antidepressant medications. Secondly, while the clinical trial was not powered for superiority but only for early signal detection, the improvement in secondary outcome makes it amenable to design a suitable phase 3 trial with different endpoints such as remission rates and other scores.
1: Now let's get back to the studies performed by Humphrey Osman, Abram Hoffer, and Smithies in patients with alcohol addiction using LSD. More recently, another pharmaceutical entity that is already an existing anesthetic is being used for psychotherapy with success. While most of the efforts in the United States focus on impact of this molecule on depression, emerging research efforts suggest promising results in substance abuse. One of the leading researchers in the field is Dr. Celia Morgan, Professor of Pharmacology at University of Exeter. As a researcher who started her career in the mid-2000s, Dr. Morgan's goal is to help patients and ensure that this type of treatment is approved for use within the UK's healthcare system, the NHS. She decided to focus on ketamine as it is a Schedule II substance and more importantly, an abundance of data pioneered by a Russian scientist, Eugenie Kapitsky, who had used ketamine to treat alcohol use disorder a couple of decades earlier. Around the same time, early data with ketamine in depression was also coming to light. So Celia Morgan decided to focus her research efforts on ketamine and its impact on reducing drug addiction. Here is Celia Morgan.
3: Yeah, um, my, well, my clinical trial has been on alcohol addiction. I've done clinical trials of um, cannabis use disorder with other compounds and other addictions, so in opioid addiction, and I've I've conducted a kind of naturalistic study of treating um, substance use disorder with ayahuasca. But yeah, the clinical trial itself was ketamine and alcohol use disorder, so uh, that's the focus. Although there's a group at Columbia University in the US, and Elias Dakwa's group have been Using ketamine really quite successfully to treat cocaine use disorder. I guess the difference with a lot of the studies compared to depression, where ketamine is given on its own predominantly, um, that the studies in in addiction, I think almost entirely, in fact, all of them have given the ketamine alongside some sort of therapy. Um, so the early work in Russia was a kind of psychodynamic transpersonal type therapy. Um, Elias's work in the US has given ketamine alongside mindfulness training or um, motivational interviewing and our work has sort of done similar giving ketamine in a context of relapse prevention based mindfulness therapy so a bit different to the depression work with ketamine um but yeah i think maybe that is because there might be a slightly bigger risk when you're giving ketamine to substance use disorder population so.
1: so how does ketamine work
3: yeah, they're quite wildly different in a way, the drugs. I don't know if people who have had the experience of them will probably be aware of that. So um, in terms of the psychological effects, MDMA causes you to go outwards, become very sociable. You get this kind of euphoria, empathy, energy, the three E's of ease, I think someone called it. Um, and then in terms of the brain, you know, it works on serotonin, the 5-HT transporter. Um, psilocybin equally you know, works as an agonist um, in, on a 5-HT receptor. I would say the serotonin receptor, <laughs> so not to use too much on uh, your scientific babble. Um, but ketamine, and, and psilocybin causes you know, lots of visual, colorful visual hallucinations, but you get a preservation of your kind of what we call your top down thinking, so your cognitive processing. Whereas ketamine produces a lot more, so it works on a completely different receptor on the N methyl deaspartate receptor, which works on glutamate, which is the major excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. Um, and ketamine um, seems well is an analgesic drug, so it's a class of drugs called a dissociative anaesthetic. And dissociation is meant to be one of the real hallmarks of the experience. In that, um, at lower doses, people feel just kind of mildly, often sometimes mildly drunk. But as the doses increase, they feel kind of separate from their environment, very detached from their body. Often going up to getting out-of-body experiences and quite profound so they seem from the outside completely catatonic but inside they'll be having these really intense um journeys and hallucinations um often out-of-body experiences so we think ketamine's probably the best of all the psychedelics and it's not a classic psychedelic because those are um drugs like lsd and psilocybin that work cygnus at the 5-HT2A receptor but of all psychedelics, I think it's best at creating this kind of disembodiment, so separation from your body. And we think that's quite powerful therapeutically in some of our psychological therapies. So I'd like to get to a place where you could use all of these compounds, you know, <laughs> in therapy and tweak it. So, you know, for we know that MDMA builds trust and um, increases cooperation, so in psychological therapy, we know that the, the alliance that you have with the therapist accounts for something like 60% of the effectiveness of the therapy. So you can see a space where maybe giving MDMA early on to build that therapeutic alliance would be great. And then using Ketamine to get these kind of out-of-body dissociative experiences, which to our, I mean, it's kind of a simplistic way of explaining it, but we think that psychologically that gives you a different perspective on your life and enables you to process these completely differently. So if you got stuck in a rut of thinking, which often is the case with all of these kind of um, mental health problems. Um, So similar to depression and alcohol use disorder, it just enables you to kind of boost out of that rut and get a different perspective on your life. Um, And that encoding, we think, is what brings about these kind of transformational experiences that we see in our therapies. So there is a neuroscientific basis to that um, in that preclinical and animal studies have shown that in the hours and day following ketamine you get, an increase in synaptogenesis so the growth of new connections particularly in the prefrontal cortex so your brain becomes more plastic your brain's more able to learn and we think that might help psychological therapies work better because what we're asking people to do in psychological therapy is to take a different to learn new things and take a different perspective so that kind of brain plasticity might be a, a neurobiological facilitator of that process
0: ketamine works on the NMDA receptor very unlike MDMA that we saw in the last episode. Ketamine is a dissociative anaesthetic. So we asked the same question on PTSD to Celia Morgan on how she chooses patients for the trial. So
3: they had to meet criteria for severe alcohol use disorder. And um, so that's where it's causing significant com- impairment to their. You know, their relationships, their ability to function in the workplace, you know, they're spending considerable amounts of their time drinking or seeking drinking. So that was one of the criteria. And that is met in various different ways. So it's quite um, variable. The presentation of people actually wouldn't be all, you know, you imagine your standard alcoholics, you know, on a park bench. It's not all like that. There's very functional alcoholics, you know, maybe not even drinking every day, but it's that loss, complete loss of control and the, significant impacts on your ability to do the things that you want to do in life and causing huge disruptions to your relationship. So that's one of the criteria. The other one is not to have had um, a substance use disorder of another kind. So we thought that was having comorbid substance use disorder. I mean, when this is, because it's a clinical trial, we want to test it in the safest possible way to start with. And then we start rolling it out and seeing, you know, potentially more risky combinations. But um, that was one of the criteria to not have been had treatment. For another substance use disorder. Um, to, we allowed some small amount of recreational ketamine use historically, so up to 10 times lifetime, but never more than, I think it was once a year or um, from memory. Um, and other criteria for the clinical trial, people couldn't be on antidepressants um, because we were looking at the mechanism as well. One of the ways we thought it might work is that when people detox from alcohol, they become depressed um generally because you've taken something away from them that they were using to deal with negative emotions and we thought that being on antidepressants might potentially mask that actually i don't think that was a good inclusion criteria because we ended up it turns out about 60 percent of the people that came forward were on antidepressants um but yeah we we didn't have criteria around treatment resistance but actually this is not a treatment that people of the people that came to us really considered as a first line treatment i would say most people the average age of people presenting was about 41, which is kind of maps onto treatment-seeking and alcohol use disorder. Um, so they are people who've had a long history with alcohol and it's getting more and more out of control, whereas some people, you know, reduce their drinking a bit as they get older, their alcohol use is escalating. And many of them had had a number of, had tried, I mean, and it was a feature of the patients, you know, they tried everything else and they were at the end of the line, really. So they tried... Um, Inpatient detoxes, they tried all local drug and alcohol therapy. They'd often tried, you know, other private private treatments, you know, and um, and always relapse. So that was what's really gratifying: seeing people maintain their sobriety on this, because there were people who tried a lot of other things. I mean, one criteria that we had for this trial, but I don't, we got really good data that suggests we don't need to have it again, <laughs> is that people have um, really good liver function; were not significantly impaired. So not three times normal liver function levels, which are where high levels are worse. And obviously that's a problem for alcohol because alcohol affects your liver function. So in that respect, we might not have got, you know, a very broad group because we had to exclude people with significant cirrhosis. But that's because is broken down by your liver. So there were some worries around that. But actually, you know, there's a trade-off there, as with any medication, I guess. And what we showed is that liver function improved in the ketamine group across the trial partly because they reduce their drinking so um yeah we feel confident that that would be potentially grounds to try that in the phase three trial hopefully so try people with poorer liver function We're just waking up the phase three trial at the moment yes which is part funded by awaken yeah to take that hopefully in nhs settings so yeah and that's really exciting um yeah, going forward for that, say. It's what you always aim for with clinical trials, but as you know, I can carry so we only did a six-month follow-up, but we are doing a kind of just um, an opportunistic follow-up after that, but that's underway at the moment. So some of them have been now three years clean, um, but we did the formal follow-up to six months with 96 patients, um, and we have four groups, because I'm a psychologist, so I was interested in the interaction with psychological therapy. So we had two ketamine groups, rather than just ketamine and placebo, we had ketamine, And psychotherapy and ketamine and alcohol education, which was so it was the match for the amount of time spent with the therapist. And because we know, just if you're a lonely person who's a drinker and you know you're going through this stuff, actually just coming and sitting in a room with someone for, I mean, they did it was an intensive therapy course, so they did seven sessions of an hour and a half long therapy. So we wanted to match for the time spent with the therapist, but have no therapeutic content. So. Those were our two ketamine groups. And then we had two placebo groups, again, placebo therapy, placebo education. And what we found was everyone did well during the treatment phase, which was short. So it's four weeks, seven sessions, as I said, of an hour and a half long of therapy or education and three infusions of ketamine. Um, and all groups, because they're in the clinical trial phase and they're in the treatment phase, they were all doing really well. And everyone, so they entered the trial abstinent and they maintained their abstinent for that short period. Um, but then we started to see the groups diverge at three months, um, and in the way that we had predicted, um, which is lucky, uh, which was the best, the best, the greatest abstinence was in the ketamine and psychotherapy group, and then the ketamine alone. So that's something that hadn't really been tested. Where the ketamine alone was effective in alcohol use disorder, and it seems like it is, well not alone, it was alongside education. But yeah, and then placebo and therapy, and then placebo and education. So in that order. With the greatest abstinence seen in the ketamine and um, therapy group, and that the, the difference was still significant at um, six months, so it's still a greater difference. I think overall, um, in terms of there was about a sixty percent reduction in the chance of relapse in the overall in the ketamine groups compared to the um, placebo groups, but actually there was a twenty-five percent greater chance of maintaining abstinence if you gave therapy alongside the ketamine rather than ketamine alone. So that should emphasize to us the importance of giving therapy alongside the ketamine. Um, and yeah, we were blown away that it worked um, <laughs> in the way that we had hoped. So that's why it's really exciting to be taking it forward to the phase three um, stage now.
1: So you can see how the research group headed by Dr. Celia Morgan is slowly taking this already approved drug through systematic testing in stages. Celia's study was a phase two study similar to the psilocybin depression trial conducted at Imperial College London. It looks promising enough for them to consider a phase three pivotal study upon which the UK regulator will make a decision to make this available widely through the healthcare system. And what does the journey of a patient through the ketamine therapy look like? Here is Celia Morgan giving us some examples.
3: I mean, I think, I mean, to some extent, it does happen with some current treatments but it helps you work with maybe a bit more of the root cause of the problem rather than the symptoms so um, it was very interesting in our patients the things that were spontaneously come up in their ketamine infusions we didn't really shepherd them we gave them an instruction to think about their life without alcohol and they did some, we did some mindfulness training before they went into the infusions. But often they'd end up thinking about things in their childhood. A lot of unusual things would come up. I was thinking of one patient and he was really quite severely um, dependent. I think he was drinking seven bottles of wine a day when he had just seen his life crumble, basically, as a result of drinking. You know, he'd lost his wife, he lost his job. I guess the standard picture Um, But he'd not really reflected on any of the reasons for that. And he'd been through inpatient detoxes. He'd engaged and disengaged with alcohol services many, many times. Um, And he said, actually, during the ketamine infusion, he had this sense of calm, like he was wrapped up in cotton wool and this sense of being safe, like for the first time in his life. And he could sort of look, he was abused by his father and he could look upon his father. He saw his father and he saw himself as a child and he felt, you know, compassion and sympathy for both in a way. And he said that was such a powerful thing. And then, you know, with a therapeutic context around that, you can then go and unpick it. But that's why I think that's really important to be able to have that space for people to have those experiences and then to be able to um, unpick them afterwards. And and this guy who, you know, never stayed since he was, I think, for 20 years, stayed sober for longer than a month, was still sober 18 months later. So it was really incredible to me those kind of, experiences um that people it just seems a kind of transformational process i think you know people have these sudden epiphanies that you just don't get on sometimes you get it in psychotherapy but it takes a long time it just seems i think is like acts as a catalyst to that process to maybe dig down to not be scared to kind of approach the trauma in the past or the things that are maybe underpinning some of these problems well it's probably an overly simplistic explanation but um, yeah, I've seen it in action with a number of patients, so it's really gratifying to be involved in this work, actually, I'm um, really exciting.
0: <laughs> that was the story of ketamine, an already approved drug used currently as an anaesthetic, but currently being explored for an expanded indication in psychotherapy for alcohol addiction. Now, can we turn our attention to a psychedelic that we have discussed extensively in the last two episodes, MDMA? MDMA, as we know, inhibits the serotonin reuptake in the synaptic terminals and therefore makes more serotonin available for action, triggering the psychedelic experience. We know that the experience with MDMA is very different to what has been experienced with LSD, psilocybin, and DMT, the constituent in ayahuasca. A UK clinic run by a psychiatrist and a psychologist is attempting to take the lessons learned from MDMA psychotherapy sessions, pioneered by MAPS and applying it to substance addiction. We invited Laurie Hickbett, psychologist at the psychology clinic, Awaken Life Sciences. Since we spoke with Laurie, Awaken Life Sciences has expanded to drug discovery and aims to open clinics in almost every major city in the UK. They have also followed an interesting fundraising path that we will cover very soon. But for now, here is Laurie Higbed.
4: Thank you for having me along. Um, As you said, my name is Laurie Higbed. I'm a clinical psychologist um, and I've been working with people with addiction problems. uh, So in drug and alcohol services for about the last 10 years or so. Um, That's been really rewarding, challenging work. Um, And then more recently in my psychology career, I've been working alongside Ben Sessa and David Nutt and colleagues at Imperial College London, um, investigating psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Uh, And we've been focused on treatments for alcohol use disorder and using MDMA. Um, And I also work in a uh, depression trial. So we're using psilocybin to support people with longstanding depression problems.
1: And for us here at Scraps... It's not just the fact that these molecules provide therapeutic benefit. We're going to dive a level deeper. A therapy or a science or a paper is only as good as the people who work on it. So we asked Lori why she got into this field. Here's her story.
4: Just a little bit about why we wanted to work with MDMA um, might might be of interest because, um, you know, it's quite an it's quite an interesting story how I came to be working in this field which is as I said before I've been working in addiction services for a long time and it was very rewarding work and I met some wonderful colleagues and some fantastic clients many of whom did recover and some of whom whom didn't um who who you know, tried their best and put everything they could into their recovery, but kept needing to come back for support. So, you know, I was in this position of trying to support my clients as best I could. And then a new psychiatrist rocked up to our service called Dr. Ben Sessa. And uh, uh, we started chatting about, you know, how essentially our caseloads were full of people who had trauma histories and were doing their best to try and cope with their distress. Um, And, you know, if they haven't picked up alcohol or um, heroin or used crack cocaine to try and cope, they'd just be in mainstream mental health services. But because they chose an illicit, you know, illicit substance to try and mask their pain, here they were in our services Um, and doing their best, but often struggling to engage in the therapies that they that they needed to and from my point of view as a psychologist and a therapist working with those people um you know if they were fortunate enough to be able to sit down with me to try and work on their trauma it was a real challenge for those people usually because they have to think and talk about their pain and their you know trauma experiences and that's really tough and there's that sense of it can you can feel a little bit worse before you get better um and you know so even though those therapies traditional therapies i'm thinking things like cognitive behavior therapy and um uh, which are good therapies we see quite high dropout rates because of the reasons i just described people struggle with them so here i was talking to ben thinking oh, what could we do uh, that serves our our clients better? And then he started telling me about his work with psychedelics. And this is about 2014. And I didn't know much about the field at all then. Um, And then we started chatting and he said, you know, I'm going to do a research trial with alcohol use disorder and we're going to use MDMA because we have... In 2014, we'd had those, that seminal work from Maps and from Michael and Annie Mithofer, who um, who published this phenomenal paper about you know the success of treating PTSD with MDMA-assisted therapy. And we thought these are the a real similar cohort here. So um, that's why we went down this road of MDMA for alcoholism. And then, so to answer now to your second part about training, um, again, a real fortunate experience for me that, um, I was able, this is in 2016, to fly to America and be trained by Michael and Annie Mithofer, who, um, are absolutely, you know, revered in this, in this field and have done most of the, MDMA-assisted therapy on um, on MAPS research trials. And, you know, wh- what you have, it's, so it's kind of a, a, a couple of weeks of, a, of a pr- an intense program where you are kind of watching videos um, and you can do kind of some of your own role plays as well. Um, but, uh, and that is extremely helpful to kind of reflect on the material that you've seen, Um, And to um, and obviously to you've got Michael and Annie's therapist modeling how um, how to be an MDMA therapist. And then what you get to do and you've kind of referred to it it being a challenge, but you can absolutely do it within them, within a kind of MAPS um, protocol is you can go and have your own MDMA assisted therapy therapy. basically as a as a healthy volunteer in a research trial and um that's you know that for me was an incredibly meaningful experience um and you know it, it means that you feel you're aware of what uh, of what that feels like to have to have kind of MDMA in a therapeutic setting where um, you are having a very internally focused experience you know there you are lying down with your eye shades on your headphones um, and that experience is really turned inwards and um, you're seeing you know seeing what comes up and going through kind of the emotions and the physical sensations that arise and kind of practicing staying with that and being open to the experience was really incredible um and i think we have to be careful to uh, appreciate that my experience with mdma therapy isn't going to be the the participants experience that i've got in front of me um but i've got some appreciation of what what of what that might what that can be like, and also just going through that process as well as being a participant in the research trial. Um, so yeah, it's a really it's it's kind of a, a real careful process of training to be um, a, an MDMA therapist. It's you know people have our experienced therapists to start with, and then we're kind of adding. Um, psychedelics into our current practice
0: And the two, Laura Higbed and Bren Sessa, had a pretty unique way of recruiting patients into the trial When they started the trial it was not easy to get patients to volunteer for the trial through the standard referral process The reason being that most patients who are addicted to alcohol go through rehab process that looks similar to Alcoholics Anonymous and we all know that the efficacy and relapse rate of group talk therapy is variable so Ben Sessa and Laurie Higbed went straight to these groups. Here is Laurie narrating the steps.
4: That's how we recruited. That that was our recruitment method. So yeah, yeah, that was a that was our uh, a standard recruitment method. We would um, go into groups. So you know, we were targeting a specific group as well within that alcohol population. We were looking at people who were um, expecting to get an alcohol detox. So we had to we had to kind of target that group of people. So luckily, in local services, of um, course, that we were connected with because we worked in them, um, there were groups to support people who were looking to get an alcohol detox. So Ben would go in; it was typically Ben, sometimes it was me, and he would just say, "This is this is our study. Anyone want to sign up?" <laughs> um, and uh, um, and quite a few people did express an interest um, and, and again then they had to go through that screening procedure so we had probably double the amount of people an interest then actually managed to get through the screening process as, 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 we, as is standard with clinical trials.
0: So what exactly are these folks in Bristol UK, the very same town that Humphrey Davy called home, work on that is different from Celia Morgan's ketamine study?
4: So as a, as a psychologist, my main role in the studies that I'm involved in is, is as a therapist, essentially, and to support people through that therapeutic journey. So um, if I kind of take our, our recent trial, which was called the BEMA trial, so you might hear me refer to BEMA. So that means the Bristol Imperial MGMA for alcoholism trial, um, and we've, we've finished that um, study now in in Bristol in the UK, but if we think uh, to take a participant going through our BEAMER study, um, we would first of all see see someone for a, a screening session. Um, so as as you're well aware, in, in research protocols, there's always a, a real careful screening process. Um, and that's checking things like um, do they make, meet criteria for, for diagnosis? So, have they got an alcohol use disorder? Um, and also checking um, they're, th- that they're suitable, that they're eligible. So, we're looking at uh, the medications that they're taking and checking that they're not going to um, in, interact in a negative way with. MDMA when they go through to their um, MDMA session. Um, we're also thinking about their psychiatric history um, and if that's suitable for them to undertake this kind of therapy. Um, and, and also, of course, importantly, thinking about their psychological readiness, getting to know them as a, as a person, as an individual, um, really working on that therapeutic alliance, even from that screening screening appointment. Um, and then what we did in the BEMA study, actually, is once people were eligible, we then off they went back to their community alcohol service and then they had a detox. So uh, just as uh, any person who's seeking support uh, from alcohol use services would do, they if they were deemed ready by their community service, they would be supported to basically come off um, their, or stop their daily drinking. Um, and then they'd come back to us after that point.
0: So they are testing MDMA assisted psychotherapy in a very profound way. Relapse is being tested and not just reduction in alcohol intake as it might be done with other studies. So essentially, this is a more stringent endpoint.
4: Yes yeah, so in um, in our study so there can be two kinds of detox there could be an inpatient detox where you um, are supported to uh, stop drinking in a uh, kind of in a hospital. Setting, um, or you could do what we call community detox, where you stop drinking but within your kind of home environment and you go and see your um, team, your nurse, usually every day. Now, we have people in our BEMA study who are doing the latter option, they're having community detoxes at home. Um, and really, um, without wanting to sound too flippant, almost cu- cu- coming off daily alcohol use is almost the easy bit not to say that it's not challenging but of course what is what is difficult then is staying dry and not relapsing um but yeah what you what you would do then if you were an alcohol user seeking community detox um you would gradually cut down over about 10 days um, and you'd have regular um checks in with your uh with your community nurse um, and they would just check your vital signs that you were um that you were doing okay um and they can support you with medications. Usually it's um, a Librium, so kind of a um, or a, or a Diazepam, something like that, to make sure um, that that kind of process is as manageable as possible. So off those, off those people go, they get their community detox and they come back to us and they're not drinking. So our BEMA study was like a relapse prevention study, essentially. We were trying to see if we could use MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to help people um stay sober um, and not relapse. And why did they hypothesize that
1: MDMA might provide an alternative option compared to existing treatments?
4: Just to give you a very brief kind of rationale why we thought MDMA might help in this situation um, is that what we know about people with alcohol use disorder is that the current treatments they can work well for many, but to, to a certain extent, they can be uh, kind of treating the symptom rather than the cause of, of some of a problem. So, you know, someone's drinking, we can help them to stop. But often they're drinking for an underlying reason, right? So they've kind of to cope with emotional distress. Um, for a lot of people, that might be kind of trauma or adversity, either in childhood or in later life. Um, and, and their alcohol use is a way of coping. So we can remove that coping strategy because it's an unhelpful one in the long term. And that's OK. But, um, you know, if we haven't got to the root of the problem with that person, then they're at real high risk of relapse. And we do see that in services. So we're thinking MDMA assisted therapy really can work at that level. It can help people to connect to the root of their difficulties. Um they can really think about what it is that's causing them to drink um and when they connect with that they have got an opportunity to process it I'm sure we'll talk more about this Aaron in, uh, in uh, later in the interview but they can process it um uh in in kind of quite a natural organic way and um and heal and recover so we and there are studies that are pretty mind blowing and incredible with PTSD that show how people can recover from trauma using MDMA therapy. So we thought, Hey, I think this might, we think this might work for alcohol too. So, uh, so here we have kind of our, our patients coming coming in um, and they have now stopped drinking. So we do kind of a, an appointment, a, what we call a baseline appointment just to check that they have kind of stopped drinking sufficiently and they feel again ready to um, proceed with the therapy course. Um, and again, there's more checks around eligibility. And then we have we can then get into the kind of main therapeutic elements um uh, uh, of of the study so we worked as a co-therapy team so it's myself and my colleague dr ben sasser he's a consultant psychiatrist um, and has done a lot of work um, in addiction services and um, psychedelic research as well so myself and ben saw every single participant on the trial together for every single session and there were 14 of them in total Um, And the patients all went through an eight week course of therapy of which there were 10 sessions and two of those sessions um, were MDMA assisted. So as you can as you can appreciate, actually, most of the course was kind of standard psychotherapy. Um, But what that kind of I would split that into kind of three main phases where we have preparation phase. Um, the drug-assisted session phase and then the integration phase. So in preparation, we're just really helping the partici- participant to feel ready, um, to ask any questions, to f- to build rapport, to feel comfortable with us um, and with the whole therapy journey so that they can really go into their drug-assisted session feeling as able as possible to kind of let go and be open to the experience that unfolds um and we would also kind of talk them through how they might best do that so we would even have a little practice with them about how they can feel um ready to to be curious or go towards whatever internal experience comes up whilst they're having an mdma um experience so even if that's quite challenging we might practice or talk through what would help them just kind of stay with that and the reason we're kind of saying to try and stay with that go towards it even or be interested in it is because what most of us do um and what people do with when you're experiencing mental health difficulties is understandably try to avoid pain (laughs) Um, that's completely understandable and hence why perhaps people might drink or do other things that feel helpful in the short term but don't help in the long term. So um, we're suggesting, you know, with the MDMA to help them do that, go towards those challenging internal experiences, whether that's a memory or or an emotion or might even be a physical sensation and just let it happen uh, because it might be an important part of the healing process. So, we're preparing them to, to go to, to do something, as you can appreciate, that sounds quite unusual. Um, it's, it's highly likely that the participants never done anything like this before. So, we're helping them to feel as ready as possible um, for that. And then we've got the drug assisted session itself where um, that's kind of between six, six or eight hours. It's a whole day. Um, uh, MDMA has a fairly long half life in uh, a reasonable half life in that respect. So, and we also give a supplemental dose to uh, to prolong the session. So it's kind of six to six to eight hours, um, and it's kind of a, a, a mix of spending time what we call inside. So having internal experiences with. Music coming through headphones and eye shades on, so they can really focus on an, an internal process. And there'll be some time spent, perhaps, talking to the two therapists that will remain with them the whole time. And the third phase that I mentioned is integration, and that's um, that's really crucial, actually. So yeah, it's really important that people don't aren't just having these kind of psychedelic experiences and then off you go. It's it's crucial that you're supported by experienced therapists to think about um, making meaning from your psychedelic experience um, and really crucially, what does this mean to my life going forward? You know, what's going to be different? What meaningful change can I make? Um, and so that's how we kind of r- ran those therapy sessions in uh, across the eight weeks in the 10 sessions was the integration um, after each MDMA session um, and then preparation uh, being a crucial part and a crucial aspect. The results of the BIMA-2 trial
1: were published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology in February 2021. BIMA, as Laurie alluded to, stands for Bristol Imperial MDMA for Alcoholism Trial. The results showed a remarkable degree of safety and tolerability of MDMA in alcohol use disorder patients and confirmed a previous observational study done in a small number of patients. A larger trial is being planned, once again with a goal to make MDMA-assisted psychotherapy treatment mainstream. So in the span of the next few years, we could see two drugs, ketamine, an existing drug, and a new drug, MDMA, for alcohol use disorder treatment. Roughly 10% of adult population who abuse alcohol and end up being dependent on this substance will have some help. While it is true that abstaining from alcohol is the obvious way to address dependency, It's difficult to avoid the pleasure and social bonding aspects of alcohol in today's society. It is clear via extensive work done in the field that individuals end up abusing alcohol purely because of pre-existing depression and trauma. So these therapies are enabling alcohol abusers to come to terms with their underlying psychological state and to treat them. We have an interesting question for you. For healthcare systems across the world that love to look at outcomes data and which measure patients and their treatment success, is it not startling that the delivery system for this type of treatment will be very different from existing chronic multi-pill per day regimens? And if all the existing molecules are taken, psilocybin, MDMA, and ketamine, what is there left to innovate? Yet just in the last two years, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars have been invested by venture capital investors into multiple companies. So where is the innovation and what will it look like? You need to hold on to hear some remarkable stories on that front.
0: You've been listening to Psychederics. Psychiderics is a Scraps original podcast produced and narrated by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Scraps is a volunteer-run organization created by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt to disseminate factful stories of science, scientists, and innovators as a service to the world. Select research for this podcast series was performed by Sharina Rice. The producers thanked Clara Burtonshaw for her invaluable input. Multimedia services was provided by... Dr. Romeo Ratch. The scripts were written and edited by Arun Sridhar and Joju Platt. Financial support to cover the production costs was from Cybern Inc. and a kind donor, BB. We thank Mr. Krish Ashok for letting us use some of his music. Recordings were done at Caprino Studios in the UK and Slightly Red Studio in San Francisco. Swaminadan Tignana them performed the mixing and mastering. All recordings, including interviews, are properties of the producers and should not be reproduced without permission. The show notes, transcripts and useful links pertaining to the episode are located at the podcast website psychedelics.com